Amen. What a beautiful name, the name of our Jesus. Isn't he wonderful? What a powerful name. What a beautiful name. What a life-giving name. And Father, again, we come to you and thank you, Father, for your spirit and your presence, your salvation, your love for us that is immeasurable, unmatched, your grace that is so wonderful and sufficient for us, your mercy that's new and fulfillment of your promise every single day. Father, your compassions, they, they fail not. We thank you, Father, that we are called to rejoice in the God that saved us, and we do rejoice. And I pray, Lord, that as we open up your word tonight, you would once again speak to us, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 If you would open up to 2 Kings once again, and we looked at the first couple of verses last week. We're going to review it a little bit and go up to verse 4. And tonight's message is entitled, Be Careful and Keep Focus. And, and you know, especially nowadays, it, you need to be very careful of, as we've been talking about on Sundays, who we listen to, what we, we focus our eyes on. Um, we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, and he's the one that's going to hold us and keep us and strengthen us in the, in the last days, in the dark days in which we live. But last time we talked about the, the captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel and the, the southern kingdom of Judah. We know that the Assyrians captured Israel and the Babylonians captured Judah, and all of the, that captivity was a result of their rebellion against God through disobedience to God's word and God's commands. And as we know, they worshiped false gods, which are no gods at all. And in their case, they worshiped this god Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. And the Bible tells us that when speaking of idols and idol worship, Psalm 115 verse 8 says, they that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. You see, we become like the gods we worship. If we worship greed, we become more greedy. If we worship, if a person worships lust, the person becomes more lustful. If a person, person worships money, they become more money hungry. If a person worships power, they become power hungry. And if a person worships flies, as we see here, they see, they're seeking after rottenness and filth, and that's true. I mean, where do flies gather in rottenness and filth, for sure? But the good news is this. If a person worships Jesus Christ, we become more like him. And what a privilege it is to worship Jesus and have him as our God, the one that we bow down before. The Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, but we all... That's all of us, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're changed into the image of God. So no city, no person, no nation can ever become great by worshiping the Lord of the flies or of any false god. And you know, when we think about this, this idol worship, the worship of Beelzebub, we know that the devil was behind it, very much behind the, the religious system of Beelzebub. 
And when we get to the New Testament, the name Beelzebub becomes associated with the devil. Remember the Pharisees heard about Jesus casting out demons, and they said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow, speaking of Jesus, Jesus doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. In other words, he doesn't have any power of his own. It's the devil that's empowering him to do so. In Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said this, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? So Jesus is saying to his disciples, you can expect the same treatment that I received. You're going to receive it as well. Refers to himself as the master or teacher. And the disciples, as we are, we are his students. That's the definition of a disciple. And because the teacher trains his students or disciples to be like him, we can expect to be treated just the same as our teacher was treated. And certainly, for us, this means living out our faith, walking with the Lord, living it out. And you see, there's no such thing as a closet Christian, at least there's not supposed to be. Christians are not to hide their faith. So if you're born again, which we're commanded to be, for born again, people should know it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And as a Christian, light, light is what we are. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And he said, I am the light of the world. So we're, we're light. We're carry, we carry the light of Christ into the world around us. So here Jesus goes on to tell us about what we're not to do with the light that we've been given. He said, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. Well, we probably all are familiar with what a bushel basket is, right? I remember my, my grandmother taking us to the public market as kids, and she'd buy a bushel of this or a bushel of that, these, these big bushel containers that held the, the goods, the fruits, and the vegetables. And what Jesus is saying here is you, you can't put a bushel basket over a light. You know, you, you light a candle, turn it upside, turn the basket upside down, and what happens, it becomes a great cover. And the point Jesus is making is who would light a candle, a means of lighting their home, no rg back then, who would light a candle and cover it up with a bushel basket? Who would do that? Well, no one would. Why? Because the light from the flame of the candle would then be useless and not seen. It wouldn't do what it's designed to do. So, family, you see, when, when we're saved, when you receive Christ, his light became your light. How wonderful that is. We, we emanate his light. And he saved you to shine brightly for him. So his instruction here is don't hide it. Don't hide that light. Don't hide your testimony. Don't hide that truth that you now belong to Jesus. You see, we're not undercover secret agents for Christ, are we? No, we're to be out there that people would see the light. Sometimes we hide it under the bushel of self-consciousness, right? You know, not sure how that person's going to react. We're never sure, though. And sometimes they reject. Sometimes they accept. Jesus said, just, just go for it. 
Just go for it. Let that light shine brightly. When they tried to extinguish the light of Jesus, he shined so brightly from the cross in full view. Everybody saw. They tried to snuff out his life, snuff out the light, and from, in full view, he said this, for all to hear, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I imagine that, that a few ears perked up. Don't you think so? You know, he's looking out. He sees the multitude of people. He sees the guards. He sees those that spat upon him, those that mocked him, those that ridiculed him, those that beat him, those that placed the crown of thorns on his head. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not, they know not what they do. That's the light shining brightly, isn't it? From his life and from his lips. So don't be afraid to be declared guilty of belonging to Jesus. I pray there's a lot of evidence in your life that people would see. Let your light shine. That's what we're called to do. And you know, sometimes some people have a feeling like they need to put themselves on display for others to know that you're a Christian. Just be who you are. Just be who you are in Christ, the child of God. You know, oftentimes when we, we go to visit a family or going out in public places, you know, we, we pray, Lord, let us just be the way we are wherever we are, in our home, in the church. Just let us be, give us the strength to just abide in you and be who we are in Jesus Christ, not, not planning things in advance. You know, you might have an idea what you might, might want to say, but, you know, be open to what the Holy Spirit would lead you to speak. And, you know, oftentimes our prayer is, Lord, let us speak of you as part of our normal conversation. Lord, open up a door. Open something up, some opportunity that we would be sensitive of in order to speak a word of truth to this person or to those people. Be who God has made you to be. And that's light. Be the light. And as you encounter people in your everyday travels... God will give you opportunities to testify of him because that's his, his, his heart, you know, through normal conversation. And guess what? He will give you those opportunities to bring light to others. And there will be times, family, when the light of Christ in you will be too bright for others to bear. You've all experienced that, I'm sure. And what happens oftentimes is people, they just walk away. But don't chase after them. Jesus never chased after anybody. He chased people out of the temple, but he didn't chase after anyone because the Holy Spirit is speaking to their hearts. They reject what you have to say. Run, they run away. Just pray. God's got them. He knows where they are. He knows where their hearts are, and he knows how to minister to them. Sometimes we, we believe that we need to get in the last word. Did you ever try that? I, I, I got to get this in before you leave. But, you know, I think we ought to leave the last word to the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Let him have the last word. Let him have the say. So let the light penetrate the darkness, and light we know dispels darkness. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? He said, others will know. You know, if you belong to Jesus, others will know because you are light. You're emanating the light of Christ. They'll see it. They may not appreciate it. They may not enjoy it. Some may, but they'll know because you're different than the world around you. 
First Thessalonians 5, 5 says, Ye are all the children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So we need to walk in the light in order for that light to shine. First John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, John said this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, as the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't you love that? As the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let the light shine. As you know, as your light shines, there may be a price to pay. You know, if they call Jesus names, then we can expect to be called names too. I remember before I was saved, I had certain names for Christians. I'm not going to repeat them. It's not worth my breath in repeating those. But I had names for them, you know, before I knew Jesus. And, and I regret that. It hurts to think about it. Because they were just doing what God asked them to do. And I didn't like it, and I didn't receive it then. But there came a day when certainly and absolutely I came to know Jesus. So, this name Beelzebub, it's the name of Satan in the New Testament, Prince of the Devils. Jesus would be mocked in calling him the Prince of the Devils. They accused Jesus in Matthew 12, 24 of using demonic powers to cast out demons, and of course he would refute that. But the point Jesus makes, if they call the Son of God names like that and mock them, they're going to mock us too. Because our, the servant is not greater than the master. And, and you know, that's a price that, that's paid. It's called the cost of discipleship. But think about this with me. And this might frighten some people off. But a bit of discomfort for Jesus is well worth the price that he paid for our lives, isn't it? You know, look what he went through that we will never have to go through. Yeah, it gets a little ticklish sometimes. It gets a little bit uncomfortable. But that's a small price to pay. You see, nothing can compare to the riches of the glory of heaven that Jesus promises to those that have placed their trust and faith in him. Well, why did Jesus share this with his disciples? I know it certainly wasn't to scare them away, but to prepare them. So they wouldn't be shocked. And as they were persecuted, they could look back and say, my master told me this would happen. He told me in advance, and all I can do is praise him because he gave me a warning. Praise his holy name, and that's where we need to be too. Praising God for the privilege that he has given us to, to first be associated with him. That we can be associated with the God that saved us. The God that created us. And second, to suffer shame for his name. Now, we talk about these, these false religions. If a person sits down and, and decides, well, I'm going to invent or make up my own religion, and it happens. Make up my own religion, and they, they make this up, and they think, think it out to be and get information from here or there, and they begin to create their own set of rules. And guess who is into that, and guess who is behind that? It's the devil. He's thrilled 
to come alongside and endorse that and promote it and encourage that. And then what happens, oftentimes he'll add a, a, some element of the supernatural to it. He, he's able to do that. But it's on the wrong side of supernatural. A couple of examples. Joseph Smith is one. You know, the, the Mormons talk about a supernatural sensation described as a burning in their bosom. And it can be real. But the question is, is it of God? I say no. I say no, it's not. I don't see it anywhere in the Bible. A man named Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Watchtower, the Jehovah's Witnesses, he, he didn't believe in hell. He couldn't reconcile it in his mind. He didn't believe in the Trinity. Then it was all birthed out of this, his failed predictions of Christ's return. He specified a date. Jesus is coming back. At a certain time, and a certain day, and when, of course, that failed, he invented his own theology. And his theology was, was founded on failed predictions of something that's unpredictable. God says you can't predict it. No man knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. There, and then there's another one. Ellen White, founder of the seven-day Adventism, formerly a Methodist, but later converted to Adventism through the preaching of a guy named William Miller who also was a false prophet who had predicted that Christ would return in 1843 or 1844. And when his, his prediction of Christ's second coming failed, he abandoned, he disbanded the Millerites, those that followed him, they, they abandoned and dis, dismayed, disarray. However, a couple of Miller's followers claimed to have visions to account for the failed prophecy. And one of those was this woman, she was 17-year-old Ellen Harmon, who became Ellen White, and began her own religion, Seventh-day Adventism. And again, where, where did it come from? Well, it was founded upon failed predictions that were not predictable. God says you can't predict it. They predict it, it fails. Oh, let's try something else then. We'll invent our own. And that's what happens, family, when we don't follow the Bible. And we see it all over the place. People invent their own religions, and the devil is eagerly standing behind because he knows that's not what the Bible teaches. And it's all designed to deceive people, then add his own lies, his own views, to lead people into the worship of him. That's what Satan wants. He wants people to worship him. And that's what was happening in Israel with Beelzebub. They thought they were worshiping something, but reality says this. They were, if it's a false god, they were worshiping the devil because the devil was behind it. So, let's read chapter 1, verse, verses 1 and 2 again. We talked about this last week. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber and was in Samaria, and he was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. So he's seeking some kind of word of encouragement from this false god, Beelzebub. Ask Beelzebub if I'm going to survive this injury or not. He gave no thought to, hey, maybe I better seek the Lord. And he has no excuse. He knew who the Lord was. 
Maybe I cons- should, should consult Beelzebub rather than the Lord, which gives us the sense of the level of apostasy that existed in Israel in that day. Well, next we see an angel of the Lord come on the scene. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? So Ahaziah, he sent out his messengers, and God sent out his messenger to intercept the messengers that Ahaziah was sending out. And here's the message that the angel of the Lord gave to Ahaziah, and we see this in verse 4. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. The angel of the Lord gave Elijah a word for Ahaziah through his messengers, go tell your king. He shouldn't be consulting with this false god. He should be seeking the God of Israel. And tell your king, Ahaziah, that he will not recover from this this illness, this accident, and he's soon to die. So Elijah was obedient. He just spoke the word, and he departed. He did what God asked him to do. He spoke what God asked him to speak, and he left. No more, no less. He did what God asked him to do. Notice the word therefore in verse 4. When we see the word therefore in the Bible, we ought to ask, what's it there for? Well, verse 3, the message in verse 3, it's because there is not a God in Israel that you go to Beelzebub. It's because he's ignoring the God of Israel and seeking counsel from this false God. So the judgment for consulting this pagan idol rather than the Lord is that you, you Ahaziah, you will never recover from your injury. Well, it brings up a question. Why would God strike Ahaziah and not allow him to recover? Why didn't he give him room to repent? I'd suggest that God did give him room to repent. God always gives room to repent. But why the judgment? Well, it all has to do with the law of Moses. The law of Moses commanded that anyone or any false prophet that led the children of Israel into idolatry or idol worship would be stoned to death. Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11. If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from the one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shall thou spare, neither shall thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people, and thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. And all Israel shall say and fear, and shall do no more of any such wickedness as this is among you. Very, very strong warning against those that would lead people away from the true, one true and living God. But we're not to, to take this literally. 
You're not to go out with a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. Well, if that's the case, what is God saying here? He's saying put to death that relationship where you're giving time to listen perhaps to bad teaching, false doctrine, harmful philosophies. He said, stop associating. Stop. But he's my friend. Or he's my brother. Or my dad or my mom, even as the scriptures say, even your spouse. God is saying, end those relationships. Well, in certain cases, perhaps, maybe some relationships are harmful. Harmful. 1 Corinthians 15, says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. But he's not saying leave your wife or leave your husband. He's saying, not saying disown your children. The warning and instruction God gives us is against allowing such influences to penetrate our minds and to penetrate our hearts. And we can be very, very sympathetic, can't we? I know what you're doing is wrong, and I know it's against the Word of God. You believe it to be right, I believe it to be wrong because the Bible says it's wrong, but you know what? I'm going to give you a sympathetic ear, and I'm not going to share the truth with you. But you know what, family? I'm so glad and thankful that God shares the truth with us. Because Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We're not to give ear to those who would entice you and say, hey, there, there's something you're not aware of. Maybe you haven't considered this in your Bible reading. There's a new and, and greater revelation. If somebody says that, may your antennas go up. There's a new and greater revelation. The Bible's fine, but you know, there's, there's more than that. Well, God is saying this, be careful. Put to death those discussions and those conversations and establish acceptable boundaries with family members or those who receive these greater revelations. And in greater revelations, and in some cases, it might get to the point where you just say, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Go your own way. Hopefully, it doesn't end up that way. But I can give you an example, a personal example. Years ago, there was a, a person, a guy started to come to our home Bible study. And not too long after that, I started receiving these emails from him, very lengthy emails, of what he called a new truth. Eloquently written, very persuasive. And the guy said this, he said, this is very, very deep not something that you can readily see from reading the Word of God. It's so deep that you're going to need my insight in order to understand it. And he drew some of his family members into this quagmire. And their walk with Jesus was affected negatively and greatly because they listened to this deep word. And he certainly tried to entice us through his emails and subsequent conversation, but something just wasn't right. That which was being shared was damning. It was condemning and could only be understood by a select few. And the warning Paul gave to the Ephesian church, and we've studied this in Acts 20, became very real. He said, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And that is exactly what happened. His family allowed him to speak these quote-unquote great truths, and rather than saying, stop, we're not going to listen to any more of, of this, he made disciples of them after himself. And I ran into one of these folks, one of these family members, not too long ago. It was a nightmare. The guy's walk with Jesus was it was a mess. That's all I can say. It was a mess, and I believe that that very incident had a lot to do with it. Well, we, of course, we had to end that relationship. We had to unwelcome them from our home and stop the emails. And that's what God is saying here. Cease conversations about things that wage war against the truth of God's word. We're to protect it. We are to preserve it. And by doing so, You'll protect your, your own heart and your family. Some folks might say, well, that's, that's a bit drastic. Well, yeah, it is drastic, but it's necessary. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said this in 2 Timothy 3, 5, they will have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, is it from such? Wrap your arms around them and give them a big hug. No, that's not what it says. From such, turn away. A form of godliness, Paul says, a disguised appearance of godliness, a veiled, shady form and appearance of that which is good and godly. But when you begin to peel back the layers, you see and say, hey, you know what? Something's not right here. And we should be able to identify those things. Number one, because we're, we're students of the word of God. And number two, because you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you who knows all truth and can discern the right from wrong, the good from bad, and your spirit will come together with the spirit of God and agree with the word of God and with the spirit of God. We don't disagree with that. And he will speak, and he'll speak clearly. He'll stir your heart. Several weeks ago we talked about, oftentimes we know what truth is and we know it's of the Lord because we have his peace and we need to trust that as a gauge. Is this of the Lord or is it not of the Lord? If it's of the Lord, I promise you, you'll have the peace of Christ. No matter what the circumstances might be, you'll have the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. And, and there's going to be a lot of people that want to hear the stuff that they want to hear. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and make full proof of your ministry. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The word keep. He's saying protect. Protect your heart. Watch over it. Guard it. Shield it. Because from it flows all the issues of life. So we need to be very, very careful. Israel wouldn't heed, would they? No, they, they wouldn't heed the warnings. And there have been warnings all the way up to this time. They wouldn't heed, and they would be judged. 
So we need to keep our hearts and our minds fixed on Jesus. And if we keep our hearts and minds fixed on Jesus, we're going to be okay. No matter what else takes place, keep your mind on Jesus, keep your eyes focused on him, keep your heart set on him, and that's the safest place to abide, isn't it? It's always safe. It's always safe. So be careful and keep focus. And I know we didn't get very far in 2 Kings tonight, but should God tarry, we'll be back into it next week and see how this account develops a little bit further. So, Father, we thank you for, for the Word of God. Uh, we thank you that you give us so many warnings in the Scriptures. And we see here, even in, in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, how that, that rebellion against you, against your commands, disobedience to your word and hearts that are set on doing what, what they want to do rather than what God would have them to do has consequences. And I pray, Lord, you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God would speak to us in those times and those, those seasons where things will impact our life that are not of you. And we know that, that you will speak truth to our hearts. We know that you'll guide us and direct us. But we also know this, that we need to keep our eyes on you. We need to keep our noses in the word of God. We need to keep our hearts set on you, Lord, trusting you, getting to know you more, more acquainted with you every single day, immersing ourselves in your presence. And we thank you for your presence here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.